Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to the Archaeotech Podcast, episode 86. I'm your host, Chris Webster, with my co-host, Paul Zimmerman. Today we talk about using LIDAR and object recognition to find mounds in the American Southeast. Let's get to it. Welcome to the Archaeotech Podcast. Paul, how's it going out there? Pretty good, Chris. How are you doing today? Pretty good. Pretty good. So we are not going to waste any time because, uh, you know, we want to, we had a pretty exciting article to read and we're going to get right to this. The article that Paul and I both read is called Automated Mound Detection Using LIDAR and Object-Based Image Analysis in Beaufort County, South Carolina. And it was by Dylan Davis, Matthew Sanger, and Carl Lippo. And you can find the reference to that in the show notes for this episode. Go over to arcpodnet.com forward slash architect forward slash 86, and you'll find the reference to that article. So we are bringing on to talk about this, uh, Dylan Davis. Dylan, how's it going? Pretty good. How are you? Good, good. So it says you're at the Department of Anthropology. Uh, I think all of you are uh, at Binghamton University in Binghamton, New York. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do up there? Uh, yeah, so I just finished my master's degree at Binghamton, so I'm actually just starting at uh, Penn State with a PhD program. Nice. Uh, but my uh, master's work was literally, this particular article was a big bulk of my master's thesis, mm-hmm. uh, where I was using this tool called object-based image analysis in uh, conjunction with LIDAR data and other remote sensing data sets to enhance archaeological prospection and the identification of new archaeological features, in this case, shell rings and mounds. Nice. Well, let's let's back up because that's, I mean, that that's a lot in one statement. <laughs> so let's back up. Let's back up for that's a second. That's a synopsis. <laughs> what got you interested in this as a as a master's thesis to begin with? How did you get interested in this? I mean, are you are you have you worked in the southeast, or what what brought that up as well as your as your study location? Okay, uh, so the location was partly uh, introduced by uh, Dr. Sanger and Dr. Lippo. Uh, Dr. Sanger is one of my advisors, uh, and so there was research opportunities with him in South Carolina. Mm -hmm. Uh, And as for the topic itself, I also have a background in geography. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I have a lot of training in GIS and remote sensing analysis uh, to begin with, and I have been coupling that with my anthropological studies. Okay. So this particular project helped uh, kind of bleed those two disciplines together, and a lot of my work tends to be multidisciplinary. Great. I think that's something that a lot of us that uh, get into the tech side of archaeology kind of bring together, you know, a computer or technical interest on one side and then that anthropological. So Absolutely. it's neat to see what you're doing. Um, Chris and I were both first uh, acquainted with your article from a Heritage Daily, which, you know, is a news aggregator, archaeological news aggregator site that uh, had a synopsis of your of the article and the work. And uh, it was really interesting the way that they that they posed it. I mean, we both came across this article, the, the synopsis article, that is, uh, independently, and <laughs> fired off emails to each other. Hey, hey, hey! Did you see this? Because it it looked like something really right up our alley um, in terms of 
you know, taking some tools that we know, some GIS tools and LIDAR and uh, applying them in ways that we hadn't seen used before uh, to, to answer some anthropological, archaeological questions. Um, and I'd like to, uh, if you don't mind, I'd like to, to get into some of the meat of, of uh, what exactly this object-based image analysis, OBIA, is um, and how you are using it. Um, so I don't know if you, uh, if you want to jump in with that. Uh, sure. Object-based image analysis is basically one way by which um, we can classify and solidify uh, remote sensing data sets or really any image-based data. Uh, so mm-hmm. Traditionally, uh, uh, most remote sensing analysts have used something called pixel-based uh, object ana- or pixel-based analysis. Mm-hmm. Uh, so traditional pixel-based approaches essentially use reflectance data, which basically take individual pixel values. So rather than looking at whole objects, you look at individual pixel data. And so these are tend to be more abstract, whereas object-based analysis, you can take specific definable characteristics such as shape, uh, size, overall circularity, or asymmetry of different objects, and you can use those to refine what the computer algorithm is going to look for and identify. In a, in a nutshell, you would, you would basically, if you're looking for, let's say, in this case, mounds or rings, you're not going to describe a mound or a ring based on how it reflects pixel values from whatever the sensor was. So you're not going to say, oh, it has a value of 25. But what you might say is this particular object is circular. It's about you know 50 square meters in area, and it rises from the surface. It has a height of like 3 meters. So that's what you can tell the computer with an object-based approach, whereas in a pixel-based approach, you can't do that. And we're, we're using off-the-shelf software for, uh, for this OBIA, or is it uh, stuff that you had to develop yourself? Um, this is through a software known as eCognition, which is like the uh, industry standard, I guess you could say, for object-based analysis. There are um, other softwares which are free, um, so there's different types of things like interimage or grass GIS. They all have different components that can do certain levels of object-based analysis. Mm-hmm. Other researchers have created their own code and scripts from from scratch uh, for this particular project. We did not do that though. Okay. You know, I, I'm curious with the uh, the pixel-based approach versus the OBIA. Before we really get into this, do you have to do like um, this might actually be a question for the end, but either way, do you have to do kind of a combination of the two to first identify uh, overall what you're looking at with the pixel-based approach and then do the object-based uh, image analysis to to further kind of refine what the computer is seeing? Or is it just using the OBIA with your method? Um, so with with object-based analysis, you can incorporate pixel values into the, the analysis itself, and oftentimes that is what happens. So we use the actual pixel values, because in this case, we were using LIDAR data, which is elevation values. Mm -hmm. And so those pixel values do come into play quite a bit. So we kind of combine the approaches, but we don't ever really use a a purely pixel-based approach. So it's always the pixels grouped into objects, if that makes sense. So an object-based approach, you, you basically segment an image into different components. And then the pixels within those components can sometimes be used for classificatory purposes. Mm-hmm. So in that respect, we did use pixel-based approaches, but within the context of 
a larger object. This is, sounds very reminiscent, uh, except you're teaching computers to do it and not people, but this sounds very reminiscent of like uh, Galaxy Zoo. Have you ever heard of Galaxy Zoo? Uh, no, actually I haven't. It was kind of a crowdsourcing thing, and I'm actually not sure if it's still going, but I, I, I sort of reference it a lot when I talk about uh, image recognition in archaeology because there's there's a lot of things we could do with this, uh, with your research, it, not just with mounds, but you know with other types of artifacts if you can get the resolution down. Uh, you know, and, and teach the computer different things because uh, Galaxy Zoo basically took images of the deep sky uh, with probably Hubble and some other telescopes. And then, you know, they found that computers couldn't actually tell the shape of galaxies very well. It was difficult for them to do that. So they created this online platform where you could sign up as a user and it taught you what different shapes of galaxies were, you know, elliptical, circular. Um, I don't know how many different options they had. Taught you, taught you what those meant, and then you just flipped through these galaxies, and you chose which one. And, and if you know X number of people chose the same thing, then it went to an astronomer for the final check. There's another one, and I think it's called Global Explorer. It was uh, Sarah Parkak who won that TEDx prize and put together this whole Global Explorer thing. She's using a similar approach to find looting across the world on archaeological sites, where she basically shows humans uh, an image that she teaches them what looting looks like first. The computer does, and then shows them an image and says, does this look like there was looting in this image? Because it was really hard to teach computers that. So mm -hmm. I guess what I'm wondering with all this is, can you use a similar approach to, I guess, help train the software uh, by first putting in sort of broad parameters and then, you know, then take the, the images or whatever this thing produces uh, and then have humans look at that and say, Yes, this looks cultural because I noticed several times in the article you mentioned, you know, it's picking up like golf courses and ditches and stuff like that as well, yes, because yes. why wouldn't it? <laughs> so using humans to, to kind of knock that out and help refine the algorithm might help. Is that something you guys explored or, or discussed when you were doing this? Uh, yeah, and actually part of the way that we finalized the results in the in the article was through a manual approach. So when we were left with our couple of, I think it was about five or six or seven thousand results that we had narrowed it down to using these parameters. Right. We then went through the rest of those by hand to basically look at, you know, which ones appear to be in the locations that are most likely to be archaeological and which have the appearance that's most likely going to be an archaeological feature versus like a golf course or something else. So it's generally speaking, you'll need a combination of manual and automated approaches because the computer's never going to get everything, and we're never going to get anything or everything mm -hmm. altogether. So you kind of need to combine mm -hmm. both aspects to fully explore any given landscape. Well, I know you guys ground truth some of your um, more promising results, and I think it. Uh, I think three of them were previously known, and two were were previously unknown to uh, to the field, which is great. And and I think ground truthing is. I, I personally, I think that's where archaeology is going, is we're going to have some sort of automated survey process and, you know, with a little bit of human interaction and then ground truthing rather than just full full scale survey of these areas. Because you also mentioned several times in the article that heavy vegetation in the southeast in particular makes it really difficult. However, as a CRM archaeologist formerly working in the southeast, I'll tell you, they don't care. They still send you out there with a machete and a shovel and a screen and say, head on through that heavy vegetation. <laughs> so yeah. one of the questions that I had for you, you know, based on some of this research is, and maybe you're not far enough along in this to be able to tell this, but is there anything that you learned that you might be able to tell field archaeologists that actually are tramping through the brush over there 
that there's there's additional things they might be able to look for aside from obviously a mound feature, but which is surprisingly hard to see when you're tramping through dense vegetation and just trying to make your way through it. Uh, is there anything you guys notice that maybe are consistent attributes of the vegetation that you can look for um, that is associated with these features? In, because of how thick the vegetation is when you're down there, it is very difficult to really note anything specific like, oh, around these types of features, you're going to find mounds or along these types of things. Mm -hmm. But I think really it would be useful in a sense, like before you send people into the field, if you were to say, okay, well, we, we've noticed a couple of places that look like they could contain something really, you know, zero in on that particular spot first. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. um, in terms of like, once we were down there, it's, it's not really very clear, like, one spot definitely contains something versus the place directly adjacent to it that has nothing. Well, uh, your article back to return, uh, returning back to your article, your article goes into a lot of detail about, uh, the particular workflow that you use. And a lot of, uh, what you discuss in it is, um, relates to templates, right? Yes. Uh, templates to help you identify sites, uh, you know, the, the criteria that, that the computer programs are using to identify the sites and then also filters, negative templates, I think you called them, mm -hmm. uh, that you're using to weed out, um, false positives. And, uh, and I thought that that was, uh, that was a very interesting part of the article that, um, how you're using these, uh, these models in two different ways in your methodology in order to, uh, to try to hone your results. And your final results when you did go out there and ground proof them sounded really promising. I mean, <laughs> like, uh, Chris said earlier, you, uh, you, you pretty well nailed it with, uh, with, uh, going out there in the field and, uh, and comparing what you found in the computer versus what was actually in the real world. Can you explain for our, for our listeners a little bit, uh, what you did, what your workflow, uh, looked like? Uh, yeah, absolutely. So it actually combines uh, two different types of object-based analysis methods. Mm -hmm. So the first part of it is basically, it, it's, um, it's that template matching that, we, that you were just describing. And what that basically, what, what, we, what you do with a template-based approach is you take basically screenshots of an image, think of it that way, and you zero in on the exact spots that you know are mound activity, ring activity, specific features that you're looking for. And you take a bunch of pictures of them and you combine them all together and you basically create a statistical template. So it's like an average of all of the features that you comprise into this particular image set. And in our case, we had about 30 of them and we created, I think, 15 different uh, averaged images because there's a lot of variability. Mm -hmm. And then it takes those templates and it scans them across every inch of whatever the data set is, in this case, the entirety of Beaufort County. Uh, and it looks for matches based on correlation. And so what it actually did is it creates, in eCognition, you can create a new image data set called a correlation map. And it creates a, an entire map of the study area with respective correlation coefficients to each individual location. And so what you can do with that is you can say, okay, where are matches, you know, 60% likely to be a, a ring or a mound versus places that are only 10% likely. And by that, you can kind of narrow down places where you're likely to find matches. With the negative template, which we also created, we, we tested this several times. And when you get the results back, you can look through them and the ones that we can clearly tell are not rings or archaeological sites that are, you know, 
roadways or the edges of like rivers and lakes and things like that. We can take all of those and do the same thing. We make a, a series of, of templates, but this in this case, it's looking specifically for things that are not what you're looking for. And we had like a, I think we had four or 500 of these false positives that we compiled into these templates. Uh, and what you can do is you make the same type of map, but this in this case, it's looking at the correlation for non-mounds. And so in our workflow, what we wound up doing with these templates is once we had our series of results that we were basing it off of, we used the true pot, like the, the positive template, which is all the things we were looking for, and the negative template to kind of weed out things that match way too closely to negative matches or that are very high in their association with um, the true positives. The second thing we did in addition to those template matching pieces is something called uh, segmentation, which is basically a way of dividing an image into objects, into individual pieces based on specific parameters. So in this case, we use parameters including asymmetry, circularity, area, and compactness to basically look at where things match all of these expected values for a mound or a ring. Uh, and once we did that, it, it spit out, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of results, way too many to go through by hand. But when we cross-referenced it with those template maps that we created earlier, we got rid of anything that matched uh, a negative template result by, you know, 70% or greater, because that's almost certainly not going to be an archaeological site. And then we also looked at places where the, the template for the true templates matched it by, you know, 50, 60, 70%. And we kept those in and we got rid of anything that was lower than that. Uh, the other thing that we did is after all of the object-based pieces, which would consist of the templates that we just talked about and the segmentation procedure, we also limited results based on land use maps. So anything that fell, you know, on somebody's house or on an area that was, you know, completely ripped up and disturbed and developed and urbanized, all of those we took and got rid of those results also. And at the end of all of this, we wound up with a manageable number that we could actually go through and in the span of like a week or so, go through all the results and figure out which ones we thought were most likely, which we mm -hmm. couldn't do before all of that because, you know, you can't go through 50,000 results by hand in a reasonable amount of time. Right. right. Which is the whole point of this exercise. It's not reasonable to do stuff by hand anyway. So, Okay. Well, that was a lot. Let's take a break. And when we come back in our second segment, we'll unpack a little of that. And, and we have some additional questions for you back in a second. This network is listener supported. We're trying to move away from paid advertising while also creating new shows and supporting the ones we have. The APN has never and will never make a serious profit on our podcast. Every little dime we make goes back into the network and improving show quality. So become a member today at www.arcpodnet.com slash members to show your support, get some extras, and be a benefactor for archaeological education. Members get stickers, a coffee mug, a t-shirt, bonus content, early access to episodes, a private Slack team to talk to other members and the hosts, and full access to training on Team Black over at arccert.black. So check out our memberships at www.arcpodnet.com slash members today and support archaeological education. That's www.arcpodnet.com slash members. Now back to the show. 
Welcome back to the Architect Podcast, episode 86, and we are talking to Dylan Davis about object-based image analysis. Uh, so Dylan, before we go too much further, uh, maybe we should take a step back because I don't think we did this, when, and that's define LIDAR because that was you know one of the primary things you guys used for your research to really give you all this uh, all these data. So uh, now that we have an understanding a little bit about what you were doing, I think now is actually a good time to try to define LIDAR a little bit and, uh, and where you guys got your LIDAR data from. So could you do that for us? Sure. Uh, so LIDAR is... Um, uh, it's either considered light and radar or light detection and ranging, and it, it's basically radar but with light. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what it does is it shoots beams of light towards the ground surface, generally from like an airplane or some kind of aerial platform, and it returns it uh, records the return speeds and times for those uh, those light pulses. Mm-hmm. Uh, and by doing that, you can map the topography of regions, and you can even do that in places that are you know, covered in a lot of trees and other vegetation, and you can get surface maps. Um, and so the data that we used was collected by uh, NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. So it was government-contracted government LIDAR uh, surveys that were done to monitor uh, environmental variables along the coast. Mm-hmm. And so it's freely available, which is the nice thing, because otherwise LIDAR is incredibly expensive to purchase. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, and it also came in resolutions that were high enough. This was, I think, 1.2 meter resolution LIDAR. So it's high enough to do archaeological uh, surveys with because uh, sometimes the LIDAR is just too coarse of resolution to really see individual objects. So the coarseness of the resolution, if it's uh, you know less than a meter or greater than a meter, rather, it's generally more difficult to identify individual objects. Whereas when you have the resolution that we did, um, it's much more manageable, especially for things like mounds or or ring or uh, settlement-sized features. So the features that you're recording here, uh, if you're using, if your uh, resolution is about one, one and a half meters, uh, how big were the features that you were looking for? Uh, so typical rings and mounds, specifically rings we'll talk about, um, in South Carolina, they tend to be about 50, 60 meters across at minimum, and some of them are much larger. Mm-hmm. So we were looking for anything that was, you know, somewhere between 15 square meters and 150 square meters in area, which this has the resolution to identify. And actually, a lot of what we did find was much smaller, which was interesting, because generally speaking, you miss the smaller stuff and you find right. the larger stuff. How small of a site could you find with this system? Uh, with this, the generally speaking, uh, you're not going to find things that are a meter because if it's one yeah. meter resolution, it's each pixel represents a meter on the ground. Mm-hmm. So realistically, you could probably find something with sufficient detail that's about you know eight to ten meters across. And did you augment this uh, lidar dataset with any of your own data collection? Uh, lidar data collection. Uh, we process the LIDAR into elevation models, uh, mm-hmm. which are done using interpolation algorithms and other things. Some of it was done by uh, NOAA, and other things were done on our end with uh, like ArcGIS. Uh, we also created like slope maps from the from the elevation model, and um, we also calculated uh, elevation differences to figure out where the greatest elevation change was taking place. Uh, and we also used a 
a visualization technique called topographic openness, which basically looks for anywhere that there's, you know, slopes on the surface. So it's looking specifically for like rises and sinks, which is perfect if you're looking for mounts. <laughs> yeah, typically. Um, so I'm wondering, would, uh, you know, with the prevalence of drones and, and they're, they're lowering in cost yearly, Mm-hmm. And drone mounted lidar, I know, is a thing. So, would that even matter, or did you find out that with the the freely available government uh, data and and getting you know a better resolution than you expected to get, um, if somebody wanted to continue this survey across the southeast and in other counties in South Carolina and and around the whole, uh, the, really the whole southeast and, and into the Midwest, would they? have the similar success do you think or would it would it benefit them to have their own aircraft or drone mounted lidar at a, at a higher resolution or is this good enough uh, i think that for the purposes of replicating exactly what we did just in other counties to get a general sense of like overall what types of features are we finding i think that this is probably good enough mm-hmm. uh, if you want to then go back and do more detailed analysis of each feature you're finding you will almost certainly need drones or some higher resolution data set because okay. um, it is very pixelated once you get down to it it can identify it but then when you're actually looking at it really zoomed up it's very coarse mm-hmm. so for like a site-by-site analysis you definitely want much higher resolution like you know sub meter a couple of centimeter resolution data sets to really work with but for broad landscape stuff like this i i, I think that the the freely available stuff is is definitely good enough. Okay. Excellent. Um, another question actually about data um, applicability is uh, I presume that, that the area that you're working in was fairly flat. It's coastal and low-lying areas. Um, would the same sort of techniques work in hilly areas or craggy or sloped? <laughs> or does it need a fairly flat plane to, to, to work uh, as using the particular tools that you're using? So to use the exact same uh, procedure we did, it could present some challenges with more rugged terrain. Uh, There were some areas of our study area that were definitely a little bit more uh, hilly and less flat, but Mm -hmm. overall, yes, it is definitely more flat. Basically, each region that uh, you apply these types of methods in, you need to account for the exact environments you're working with and the exact features you're looking for. And so... There can't ever really be a one-size-fit-all type of approach. It always needs to be regionally specific. Mm-hmm. And so if you take into account the, you know, the, the unevenness or the very flat nature of the topography, you can kind of work in whatever those exceptions are, and you can apply similar methods to this, but you'll need some additional variables and potentially to modify some of the data sets you're working with to make them uh, more usable with the method you're, you're applying. Mm-hmm. So with, depending on where you're working, if there's tons of vegetation and so the, the data set is a little bit more chunky, yeah, it may not be as accurate as a much higher resolution area with much flatter topography overall, but it can still be used. You just have to kind of work on and manipulate the data a little bit more to make it more usable with the methods that we're applying. But it can certainly be used in all sorts of areas. Good. I've got a question about the data um, that you ended up with as a result of all this. It says in the article here, of course, that supplemental data for the article can be accessed at the uh, at the website at, over at Taylor and Francis, actually, where this was published. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm wondering about the uh, 
you know, the what kind of data is actually over there or or are actually over there. Is it if somebody were to go check out that data uh, or those data, would they be able to find the locations of uh, potential locations of all the mounds using your software um, no. that you guys? OK, that's what I was asking, because that seems yeah. like pretty sensitive um, information. Yeah, so the the supplemental data set that's on Taylor and Francis's website is a list essentially of all the mounds that we identified that were pre-identified. So all it contains mm-hmm. is essentially the number that we had and then the site number that's just, that's actually been assigned to it. Okay. Um, there's no geographical information. There's no coordinates. Uh, and then there's additional supplemental data that we had, which was the templates themselves that also does not contain any geographic data or information. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the coordinates and the locations of these particular sites are not publicized anywhere. I guess a potential issue, though, is somebody could, in fact, use the publicly available data and replicate your methods and just find stuff, right? That is one possibility. Uh, yeah. If they had the time and the resources, that can <laughs> that's definitely true. happen. <laughs> and that's potentially one of the issues with freely available data. But at the same time, it does still allow, I think, a lot more good than than potential bad. But there are certainly risks associated with what right. type of data is freely true. available to the public. Looking at the good of, of all this, of course, is your data available to and I now I mean actual locations of things that you guys found but weren't able to ground truth obviously because you found so much um, would that be available to agencies or CRM firms if they were to ask for that or are you guys locking that down but but allowing them the methods as far as I'm concerned if uh, if an archaeologist or an archaeological firm wanted uh, access to the locational information I would be willing to provide that but it would mm-hmm. certainly be it's more yeah. locked than it is open. Like I would, we would want to make sure For whoever's sure. actually using it is qualified and so mm-hmm. forth. But, but yes, nice. it would ultimately be for sharing because we want people to actually go out and look and, and confirm as many of these as we can, and so we can uh, continue to improve the method if it need be. Yeah, it seems like working with the state and, you know, at least uh, I don't know if they're aware of what you did or not, but at least making them aware and saying, hey, we have this huge data set. And uh, if you get anybody requesting a, a permit or, you know, work authorization to work in those areas, then maybe they could uh, ground through some stuff for us and let us know what they found. So that'd yeah, be that'd be pretty absolutely. cool. Yeah, because there's tons of CRM projects going on in those areas pretty much all the time. So, you know, with the high amount of development that happens in that area. Yeah. Paul, did you have something? Um, yeah, you said good. And um, I just, before, <laughs> because I, my jaw dropped when I read this, um, from the conclusion of the article, uh, I'm just going to quote here. Despite these limitations, our algorithm enabled us to identify topographic features for an entire county of 2,481 square kilometers in the span of one week. Yeah. <laughs> Which is, you know, Chris and I are very into using computers to help archaeology doing to uh you know to to speed up data collection to improve data processing uh and analysis and uh to make the methods more clear and reproducible and when i see something like this um of being able to scan an entire area once you've developed the system uh of this size in this amount of time it really uh it seems like a huge boon for the field um Absolutely. So I don't even know where I want to go with that. <laughs> Just to say that number, 2,000, almost 2,500 square kilometers in one week. Uh, that That's fantastic. Uh, Thank you. Now, 
you do uh you you do mention you know again back to the uh, the the notion of the templates you do mention that you can use those that you're going to be that you can refine them as you go forward right you could yes. you could improve your your positive templates you can improve your negative templates i suppose you can probably incorporate other kinds of data from other scanners to improve them mm-hmm. you can ground proof and use that to to further improve um and that's something else i like is that this is uh, this is potentially a very iterative iterative process where you and other researchers can continue to apply the techniques and modify them and improve them and improve the model absolutely uh, as you go forward um that's that's also very exciting to me do you yourself have any plans on continuing uh with this particular project or uh now that you're moving on to a phd program are you moving to something different uh well for my PhD work, I'm sure it will involve some similar things and some different things. But uh, with this particular project, we are continuing. Uh, we're basically building analysis off of what we found. So we're not currently expanding it to new counties, but that will certainly be the future uh, like future work that we continue. Uh, but in the meantime, we're actually looking at the shellring features that we identified and trying to get a better understanding of like settlement distributions and overall patterns that we're seeing with that in combination with the data we already had. So looking at what we knew about before versus what we now know and kind of seeing if this tells us anything new. That's the project we're kind of working on now. Uh, And future Mm -hmm. work will also, I'm sure, expand the use of this method to the neighboring counties along the coast. So you're going to continue your studies in the southeast? Uh, Most likely I will be doing at least some of my work in the southeast, yes. Nice. Cool. You know, I I'm pretty excited about this because, like Paul said, that quote about the 2,481 square kilometers in the span of a week. I mean, I, I talk about this a lot on the podcast, but I did a 30,000 acre survey, which I looked up is uh, about 121 square kilometers, so a tiny fraction of what you did, and it took us eight months to do that survey. <laughs> so, oh, <wow. laughs> yeah, so and it was in a different. It was in the Mojave Desert, you know, in Southern California, so a little different. But um, I, I'm in. I know it's like it's like everything you start big with like mounds and stuff when you when you're trying to you know see these with the with those kind of data and then we can come all the way down eventually I think when we when we figure it out and we get the resolution on the imagery it's really you're figuring out the software side of it which I I think is amazing and great and, and really working out the algorithm and once we can feed the algorithm you know, sub-centimeter resolution data, which we would need to uh, to find individual artifacts and things like that on a desert surface, well, then we're done. You know, you're, you're doing the math and we just get pumped the data into that and we should be yeah. able to knock that knock that survey right down. I love it. What, uh, I, I'm curious, you know, when I look at the title for this article and and, and, and also your, your master's thesis, I'm curious, were you interested in, in, mounds and mound detection first or were you interested in lidar and object-based image analysis first and we're trying to find a place to apply that what came first uh the the remote sensing side of it so the lidar and the the obia aspect uh, probably came first i would say and then it was finding a place to apply it and this was one very very useful place to apply it that it hadn't been before so uh in the north in north america in general this technique has really only been applied maybe a handful of times before and the southeast was not one of those places nice so in your in your search for uh, a place to apply this technology what what didn't make the cut what were some of the other things you were you were thinking of uh, i mean there were a couple of uh, other places mostly uh, the other location i was looking at for doing research was actually uh, in polynesia 
mm-hmm. uh, but the data available mm-hmm. to us based on funding was not uh, mm-hmm. not there. Whereas this, we had the freely available data sets, and it just made a lot more sense in terms of financially to apply it here first to see if it works, and then later on we can apply it when we know it works we can purchase additional imagery. Nice. I've been told that there's a lot of free imagery available, like really high-resolution LiDAR data of the Lake Tahoe Basin. I live in Reno, Nevada, and yeah. there's no mounds here, so I'm trying to figure out what we could use it for. <laughs> but <laughs> There's a lot of dense forest cover and and things like that, and sometimes sometimes old structures and things are found from you know miners and settlers back in the 1800s. Yeah, it could and, definitely uh, be used for historical archaeological yeah. survey. Mm. Absolutely. So... Okay, well, um, what are your what are your next steps? I know you kind of already answered that, but where are you, where are you going from here? Uh, so I'm continuing to do some of this work with the, the settlement distributions with um, the rings and stuff we found from this project. And I'm also just starting out for my PhD, so looking at a couple of different potential things, but nothing is solidified yet, all up in the air. Okay. Well, Dylan, I think that's all we have for you today. Certainly feel free to come back if you uh, develop any other great new technique. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. We'd love to have a follow-up if you if you learn anything new about this or find somebody using it or, or like Paul said, you know, develop some, some new stuff that we can talk about. So we're always happy to talk about tech on the Architect podcast. And we, we have a lot of listeners that, that might be able to chime in as well if you uh, come across something and you want to maybe uh, crowdsource some ideas about it. Come on and talk about it and we'll, uh, we'll put it out to the listeners. Absolutely. All right. Well, thanks a lot, Dylan. Thank you for having me. Thank you. And we will be back shortly for our app of the day segment back in a minute. Hey, podcast fans and digital archaeologists. Have you heard about WildNote? It's a data collection app that works online or offline on your smartphone or tablet, iOS or Android. It allows you to collect field data easily, manage data efficiently, and generate data reports and site records effortlessly. We have a growing list of state site forms built in for your use and some generic forms that will work anywhere. Check out the shovel testing and photograph forms. You can get a free all-access 30-day trial today by going to wildnoteapp.com. That's wildnoteapp.com for your free 30-day trial. of the webinars and training offered by the big organizations not being free for members and not really covering what we need? Team Black has the answers. Check out arccert.black forward slash main for our upcoming webinar schedule. All of our webinars happen once a month and seating is limited. Learn everything from field tech basics to drones to digital workflows. We have more classes coming online every month. Classes are always one hour and cost just $20. Classes like building a CV and getting a job are always free. That's right. We'll help you get a job, then we'll be here when you want to level up your skills. If you are a professional subscriber to the APN at arcpodnet.com slash members, then you get all of Team Black's offerings for free as part of your membership. We have Team Black memberships coming that will give the same for the APN. So $20 a month gets you all the APN swag and extras plus free training from Team Black. So check out arccert.black for more information and level up your skill set today. That's arccert.black. Now back to the show. Welcome back to the Architect Podcast, and this is the App of the Day segment for episode 86. And I'm going to go first, and mine is not an app at all. 
however, it might help you with some of your apps. I don't know. But I recently became aware of dual USB drives. Uh, maybe I'm completely backwards on this and everybody else knows what the hell I'm talking about. But uh, just in case you don't, some of the early dual USB drives had the standard USB plug you're looking at. So USB 2.0, 3.0, uh, 1.0, presumably that, that standard USB uh, flash drive that you're used to seeing the big flat rectangular one. Exactly. Exactly. So, and then on the other end, it would have like a micro USB, which is similar to the power uh, and connection requirements for say most Android phones and, and other devices like cameras and all kinds of stuff use that micro USB plug. So you could presumably take that micro plug it into your Android device, tablet, phone, or camera, whatever, transfer files to it and then plug the other end into your computer when you're done and not have to worry about any weird connection issues and then transfer the files. Well, I when I edit my podcasts, I use uh, audio plugins to do some of the editing from a company called Waves. And Waves is uber strict on their licensing. So if you have one license for your audio plugins, which I do, you have to either use their Waves Central program on your computer to send that license to the cloud and then pull that license back down to another computer because I'm constantly going back and forth between the iMac in my office and my MacBook Pro at home or wherever else I'm working. And when I first started using these Wave plugins, my God, the amount of times I would forget to transfer that license back to the cloud before I left the office and now I've got my computer at home and I'm editing podcasts, like son of a bitch. So I'd have to wait until I got in the next day and then fix it that way and and and, and fix the audio after I edited it. So. So one thing I did do that they allow you to do is you can actually put that license on a USB flash drive. So I took that, I took a flash drive. Now I keep that in my backpack and I always have that license with me. But again, I have another small problem and I understand these are first world problems. However, it's still annoying to me. (laughs) Uh, My other problem is my iMac has the standard flat rectangular USB slots on it because it's about a five-year-old or four-year-old iMac, whatever it is. But my laptop is, uh, and I think about this just, la- yeah, it's about a year old. It's the new MacBook Pro from 2017. So it has four USB-C slots. So uh, uh, in order to plug in the regular flash drive, I have to do one of two things. Either get the the infamous dongle from Apple or somebody else and plug that in and then plug the USB drive into that, which I have. I have one of those, but it usually stays here in the podcast studio. But the other thing I bought was this USB hub that basically plugs into one of the ports on the USB-C thing. And it gives me two regular USB 3.0 ports. It gives me a micro SD card slot, a regular SD card slot, and then a through port for the USB so I can plug my power into there or something like that if I wanted to. And that's how I have to plug in my flash drive. Well, I went on Amazon literally this morning and said, I'm done with this. There's got to be something to fix this. So I said, I just typed in USB-C dual, not knowing that anything like that existed. And sure enough, there's an entire market for that. So I spent like $25 on a 64 gigabyte flash drive that's got flat rectangular USB 3.0 on one end, USB Type-C on the other end. So now I'll be able to use the same USB flash drive without any extra dongles, without any extra hardware. I'm, I'm a huge fan of carrying as few things as possible. And I'll be able to plug that in my iMac on at uh, in my office. And then when I go home or to a coffee shop, wherever I'm going to work for the evening, I, I can then plug that into my MacBook Pro. So I thought I'd bring that up, even though a lot of people probably don't have USB-C ports on their computers because I know it's a it's a solidly uh, Mac thing right now, uh, and it, and it's only Macs uh, the MacBook Pro made in the last two years, I think it is. That being said, a lot of newer 
uh, Android-based phones don't have micro USB anymore. They have USB-C. Um, a friend of mine had, I think it was a Galaxy, uh, one of the newer Galaxy phones from Samsung, and it had USB-C on the bottom. So if you're interested in in transferring data that way and not using by pulling out your, your micro SD card, then it might actually help you. And I know a lot of archaeologists have Android phones, and I would highly recommend if you want to transfer data off quickly or store a whole bunch of stuff on a drive that you're always carrying with you, because you, I mean, you can get these really small ones that are 256 gigabytes in size, and they're only about you know, $60, $70 for that size, but super cheap for the 64 and like 128s. You can get them for 30 40 bucks. And, and use that to just either store or transfer data off your devices. This might also be good for digital archaeology. If you have Android devices out there and you want to pull information off of those and store them, you can just pull it off using one side of that drive. And when you get back to the office or back to the vehicle, wherever the laptop is or computer that you're using, plug the other end right into your computer and transfer all your data that way. So pretty handy little device. And uh, I thought I would let people know about that in case they are as ignorant as I am and had no idea they even existed. And I'm excited for mine to get here tomorrow. Thanks, Amazon Prime. <laughs> <laughs> so that's all I have. I'll put a link to the one I purchased in the show notes so you can see it, but there's tons of options out there. Right. All right. Okay. Paul, have you ever heard of anything like that? Uh, only um, I've had this kind of ongoing project since the spring, um, a programming project kind of scratching back of my head uh, mm -hmm. with a Raspberry Pi. And eventually I wanted to go from uh, a regular Raspberry Pi to a Raspberry Pi Zero, which is a little kind of credit card sized one. Um, and the Raspberry Pi Zero, uh, one of the, the, the features of the, the programming project is going to be logging data out to an external source, to a USB drive. And uh, mm -hmm. the Raspberry Pi Zero only has the micro USB so I could either have a dongle on that, or I could use a micro USB um, USB drive. And mm. and as I was looking for that, I found out that there are combo ones that uh, that do micro USB and uh, and the full size USB on the same device. You know, so that's one less dongle. That's um, that's one thing. I haven't actually purchased one because I don't have a Raspberry Pi Zero and I've kind of hit a snag with my programming project. <laughs> so I'm not to that point yet. But uh, but it is something that I ran into a couple months ago. I was like, oh, that makes a lot of sense. Nice. Nice. All right. Cool. Well, what have you got for us today? All right. So I like to talk about apps that I've had on my phone for a long time and uh, and use regularly, even if it's not use frequently, but use, you know, once a year for that one specific thing. Today, I'm going to talk about something. This is kind of going to be the uh, anti-app of the day. Yeah, it's going to be a little <laughs> bit of a rant. <laughs> uh, a few weeks ago, uh, I went to a concert with my daughter and my niece. We went to go see the Arctic Monkeys at Forest Hill Stadium. Pretty good concert. I'd purchased the tickets back in the spring when they first went on sale you know, how it is when you buy tickets online now, you know, you pay the however much, the $50, and then you pay the other $50 of convenience fees and taxes and mm -hmm. inconvenience fees and whatever else. Um, you know, so I get through all that and they tell me that uh, when the tickets become available, they'll send me a link. Okay, fine. So the, uh, Concert gets closer, I get the email, I get the link, and I download it. And unlike what you're probably used to, where you get a PDF that has your ticket, you print out and you take that, or a link that'll take you to the website and you can load it up, say, into your Apple wallet, which I've done before and I like quite a bit. This was a link to go to a website 
that has a project a product called Flash Seats. And if you look, I mm-hmm. didn't look at what the um, the reviews are like for this on the Google Play Store. It's both Android and uh, iOS. Uh, but on the Apple Store, the uh, the reviews are brutal. <clears throat> and it basically does what it's supposed to do, which is that it. Um, and downloads your tickets onto a scannable barcode on your phone. The problem is that uh, the companies that use this particular service, Flash Seats, you don't have an option of getting any a ticket in any other form. You have to download this program. You have to set up an account and give away additional personal information that you probably don't want to do. Uh, right. In order to use this one app to see your tickets. You can't pass the tickets once you've gotten them over to, um, over to say your Apple wallet. They just exist within this one program. And I have no idea what this is supposed to help anybody for. <laughs> really? <laughs> I mean, I've already spent too much on the tickets. I've already spent all that money on the convenience fees. Um, mm. And now I have to download an app, set up an account, give away some personal information in order to get access to the ticket that I've already paid for because they provide no other way about it. It's um, it's a really, in my opinion, it was a really cynical way of getting some sort of demographic data and some sort of lock-in to use this one particular pro- product. And the reason why I bring this up on this isn't, uh, you know, if you have to use it, you have to use it. I mean, you're screwed. You know, if you're going to Forest Hill Stadium to go see a concert, you're going to have to use this. And actually, that's one of the complaints on the Apple reviews. A lot of people said, you know, I went to go see a particular sporting event. Um, I'm not going to go see that team again when they're playing at home because uh, I don't want to have to use this app. Uh, <laughs> there are some horror stories in the reviews about um, about customer support with it. I'm not surprised. Everything about it feels very fly-by-night. Mm-hmm. But I bring it up in the context of the Architect podcast, especially after the interview that we just did, where you know there's a new technique that potentially can be used to uh, to really cut short the amount of time that it takes to survey an area. You know, so it's it's using new technologies in an innovative in an innovative way in order to improve speed and accuracy of what we're trying to do. This particular program, this Flash Seats, is the opposite. It's using new technology in order to not really benefit the consumer, in order to put up needless walls. There, there are plenty of ways to get your tickets. Everybody else seems to have figured it out, but for some reason, these this company has their own way of doing it that's incompatible with everything else. And I don't know what somebody would do if they don't actually have a smartphone. I mean, there are still people out there with, with flip phones. Right. Yeah. Um, I have no idea how they're going to get access to their tickets when they go to that venue because uh, it's not there. I mean, presumably they'd go to the box office and talk to somebody and they'd look it up and blah, blah, blah. But that's just a whole lot of extra hassle. Again, I bring it up in the context of this uh, of this uh, podcast because sometimes when we do things for, with tech, it seems really smart when we start. <laughs> it seems like a really cool idea. Uh, and as we dig in, we might find that, well, we're reinventing the wheel. Oh, we're spending so much time programming it that we're not actually saving time in the end, um, that it's maybe a, um, a dead end, yeah. a false start. Uh, and I just want everybody that, that listens to us that does their own programming to just be aware that sometimes you just have to, you know, 
pull the plug on whatever it is you're working on. <laughs> Somebody else has done it better and j- just stop. <laughs> right. So there's my, my slight rant, negative uh, review of flash seats. Okay, then. Uh, it's good to get stuff like this because, you know, archaeologists are traveling around a lot and might want to see a show or something where they're, where they're going. And, and, and this could be one of the options that they have for the tickets. So it's good to, it's good to have your, your unbiased review of this software. I like it, you know, good or bad, so we can know. Okay, well, tell us how, tell us about your favorite apps. Tell us about, uh, you know, what you thought of the show today and, and, and what you think the, uh, more importantly, what you think the technology that was discussed in the beginning here, what do you think it could be used for? I know I've got my brain flooding with ideas for what they could use that for and, uh, and where it could go in the future. And I think, I think, like I said, I think they nailed it or they are nailing it. They've got the, the workflow you know, solid. Uh, they proved that the workflow is good. Now we just need to give it better data <laughs> and we can pretty much do anything. Yeah. I mean, that that seems like a logical conclusion. The workflow is good. Give it better data and we can find anything we want. Like Paul was saying too, with this flash seats thing, sometimes yeah, there's good intentions and they don't, they don't work out too well. So I think we have to be careful. Uh, I'm skeptical of him even publishing the workflow for uh, for this because like I mentioned, if the data set he used was was freely available, and he published the workflow, then literally anybody can replicate those results. And, you know, having the computing time and the time, that's not really an argument against, you know, should should you do that? Because people will find the time, people will find the computing ability if they want to, if they think there's a, a price for it. And with all these unexplored mounds out there and the sheer dollar value in the artifacts on the open market for that kind of stuff, the money and time is there. So be careful when you're publishing that kind of stuff, I would say. Yeah, I would say though, in his defense, he's not publishing those templates. That's true. He uh, explains that they do build them, and he explains some of the parameters that they use to build them. But the templates, as far as I can tell, are not being published. So the data set, that lidar data set that the state put or that NOAA put together, mm-hmm. that's available. But the the smarts behind it aren't necessarily right. Right, indeed. Okay, well, thanks, uh, thanks, Paul, and 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 I'm glad the. Uh, lightning and storm passed you by and didn't knock out the podcast yeah yeah me too it's uh <laughs> it's always good when we don't get hit by lightning that's right that's right so i i will put a, a request out for this we are looking for um uh, just because we have a few extra minutes here we are looking for volunteers to do various things with the apn so if you have a couple extra hours and you want to help with this uh with this really good public outreach tool that we've built here I'm hoping that the volunteer efforts of the volunteers and, and our efforts do lead to monetary uh, compensation as well. You know, some some mildly paid positions because uh, we need volunteer effort to really get some of our stuff that we want to do off the ground. So if you're interested in that, send me an email, chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. There's a ton of different things, so I don't want to just go into it on this podcast, but just to say that we're looking at all kinds of different stuff that you may or may not have a skill set for. What I really need is people to have time, just a couple hours a week, and we could teach you what needs to be done. It's really just getting it done that is the problem. So none of this is hard. It's just, it's just the doing of it all. So, uh, and as compensation, if you, if you make it through at least a month, uh, and we can commit to about six months on a, on a really loose contract, just to say that you'll do this for about six months after your first month, I'll give you a one-year pro membership in the APN and send you the whole swag package. So I know it's not money. It's not compensation from a pay standpoint, but it does have about a $400 value when you look at it that way. So, um, or $350 value, whatever the case may be. So anyway, 
contact us if you're interested in that. What do you think, Paul? Sound good? Sounds great. <laughs> there you go. All right. Thanks, everybody, for joining us, and we'll see you next time. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Architect Podcast. Links to items mentioned on the show are in the show notes at www.archpodnet.com slash Archaeotech. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com and paul at lugal.com. Support the show by becoming a member at archpodnet.com slash members. The music is a song called Off-Road and is license-free from Apple. Thanks for listening. This show is produced and recorded by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle in Reno, Nevada at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US dollars a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info.